0: And welcome back to Big Mood, Little Mood. I'm your host, Danny Lavery. And with me in the studio this week is Emma Arnold, a comedian, artist, and beekeeper who recently released a comedy special called Myself. She hosts the CityCast Boise podcast and keeps bees and children with varying degrees of success. Emma, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Danny.
0: Do you mind if I ask? I don't want to get too distracted by the bee part, but... What kind of bees do you keep? Like, are there particular types of bees that are, I don't know, unique to your area or that you prefer?
1: Um, I keep European honeybees. Um, although in the last couple of years, I used to run quite a few hives. But I, after some studies came out talking about how European honeybees, which are the bees that make, you know, honey, obviously, mm-hmm. that you're familiar with.
0: Your classic um, how, bees.
1: Classic bees. Um, How actually having them in urban environments can actually push out a lot of native pollinators. Mm. So I have actually started to kind of go back. I only have two honeybee hives now. And I actually have started to try and do a lot more native bee. You don't actually keep them since they're like technically feral, I guess, Mm -hmm. or wild. But I have carpenter bee houses and I have my whole yard set up as a pollinator like sanctuary for native bees. And actually in the last couple of years, it's been really interesting to see as I cut down on honeybees how many more native pollinators have come in and how neat that's been.
0: That's so exciting. And I assume when you say native pollinators, some of that is bees and some of that is birds. I we're reaching the limit of my like knowledge of how <laughs> plants work. So uh...
1: no, like different bees and wasps. Okay. Um there's actually like thousands of varieties of uh bees, like tons sometimes. Even in your area, there could there might be a hundred different native bees that are like running around little solitary bees they're called because they don't typically live in giant hives like the honeybees that's um, but also moths and butterflies are big pollinators too and uh, it's been cool to see you know if you have like a if you have like just like a grass Kentucky bluegrass yard you're not that's a barren wasteland for pollinators but mm-hmm. throw if you throw some sunflowers out there pretty soon your yard will be full of every kind of cute little bug
0: well, I I love this image deeply. I don't have a yard, so there's there's not much that I can do in the way of of providing ground for pollinators. But perhaps that's for the best because moths upset me almost beyond the point of like comprehensibility. And so perhaps the greatest gift I can give a moth is just space and neutrality and a promise not to kill it.
1: Well, that's fair. I mean, you know, they are one of those like, hey, I'm going to bump into your lamp 500 times and make it's a big the scene. In. They're very dramatic, mom. Yeah, but I, yeah. I do love them.
0: I do like. I, I think they're valuable and interesting, and I want them to be in the world. I just the 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 way that I want that to be is they don't go near me. I don't go near them. They can <laughs> hang out at Annie Dillard's place, and she can like write all the essays she wants. But we just give each other a wide, respectful berth.
1: <laughs> Got it. Yeah, you guys have a, a nice little like peace treaty. You don't come and they don't go to your house. You don't go to theirs.
0: It really, because I, I like the idea of them. You know, I like the sort of bumbling nature of them. I like their sort of weirdness. A little it's night just,
1: butterfly. That's all she is. That's a little night butterfly. little
0: <laughs> night butterfly. But a, a, a butterfly, I feel like, has a nice aloofness that I really respect. Because it's like, mm. I don't feel like you want to fly into my face and hair. I feel yeah. like you want to go do your own thing. And a moth, I feel like, I think my reaction to a moth, is sort of like if I saw a person on fire who was running around trying to be put out by like grabbing you, and you would be like, "No, this is not how you get a fire put out. You're going to hurt me. Don't touch me." That hasn't ever happened. It's not the greatest analogy. <laughs>
1: now I'm picturing moths on fire, like chasing you, and it's it's gotten more dramatic even even more with that. Yeah.
0: It is now now we're just doing the Annie Dillard Moth essay at this point, <laughs> which is, you know, probably an indicator that we should turn our attention toward the problems at hand. But, um I'm looking forward to going through some of these together today. I realize that our first one, especially, has to do with some like really thorny questions about like medical treatment and mental health and like diagnoses and 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 how you handle potential diagnoses. And so I think it will be helpful just to start by saying, we can't diagnose anybody. We are not going to end our discussion of this question with a sort of like, and here is how you will fix this situation. This is more of a question of like, what do I do with my anxiety and my uncertainty as I do my best to help someone whose problems I won't be able to solve either? Um, And and I think that'll be useful for us to bear in mind lest we wander in and feel like, oh God, we've got to become doctors in the next 20 minutes. Um, But the subject line is possible diagnosis uncertain treatment. A close friend of mine has been behaving strangely. It's ruined most of his relationships and he's been fired from more than one job. At first, I distanced myself from him and I wasn't even sure how to think about this erratic and unpleasant behavior. Recently, a mutual friend told me that she thinks he may have schizophrenia and I think she may be right. Our friend paid for an appointment with a psychologist so that he could discuss these concerns, but it didn't go anywhere. When I asked him what he thought, he admitted the diagnosis is plausible. That isn't his main concern, though. The problem right now is that he's out of money. We live abroad, and he's not eligible here for social benefits. He can't pay his rent, and even if I had the money to loan him the cash, I know he can't stay here when he isn't well enough to work and afford the cost of living. I don't know how to tell him this, because he's difficult to communicate with. Sometimes he's lucid, but more often he's removed from reality. He knows that he's confused, depressed, and isolated, but, and this is kind of per definition, he doesn't really understand these delusions. How do I take care of my friend in this situation? Mm. It's a tough one. And and additionally difficult because uh, they they don't live in the United States, so I feel like there's, I I know even less about potential resources uh, that he might be able to access. So I think my first thought here was, it doesn't seem like the letter writer is, like, tearing up their own life trying to solve this. So I, I'm not too worried about the letter writer, like, doing too much or needing to scale back. But I do think it's useful to start with. This might be something that just goes on for a while and is sad and hard to watch. And that may simply be the outcome here. Uh, Do you have a strong feeling of if the letter writer is already talking to one mutual friend that maybe a good next place would be to talk to other people in the States who might know him or potentially his family? Or do you feel like uh, better to go through state resources, mental health resources in this country first rather than trying to like tap into a social network?
1: Yeah, it's hard because since we don't know which country they're in, I mean, at first glance, I would say, ah, well, maybe it's better that you don't live here since our mental health resources are so often in the U.S. very limited, Mm -hmm. Um, but without knowing where they are. Yeah, I mean, my experience with these things, um, I have a person with schizophrenia in my family and... My experience is it's so difficult to know ethically and also sort of emotionally for yourself how involved to get into these things because um, unfortunately, a lot of people with schizophrenia and similar mental illnesses tend to fall through the cracks, tend to not, I mean, a big part of the disease, which schizophrenia is profoundly disabling. It is a really difficult condition and even uh the person in my family who has a pretty broad support network who has a lot of people willing to help them when they are struggling still often has has fallen through those cracks because at the end of the day that that person is still an adult who can make their own choices who if they say i don't want to take my meds or i don't think that this is an issue y- you kind of have to you have to respect that a lot of times at the end of the day so yeah, without really knowing what country they're in, like if they were here, I would say, you know, NAMI is obviously a great resource. Uh, the National Alliance of uh, for Mental Illness is a great resource. But in, in general, dealing with something like this, I would say building community is always the right thing to do. Um, always like trying to find more people who understand what you're going through and and, and your struggle. That's probably always the thing to do.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's really useful. I know also there's uh, an organization called the British Columbia Schizophrenia Society. That I, I don't, I don't want to assume the letter writers in Canada, but I just think that um, potentially just even checking out like the list of resources on their website, um, looking for possible analogs in or near your own country might be useful. It wasn't clear to me how directly the letter writer has talked to their friend about his delusions, but it sounds like at least in some moments uh, he's agreed, yes, I experienced delusions some of the time. Um, and the only thing I think I would add to that is, you know, continue to be available and non-judgmental whenever it's possible. So like if your friend reaches out to you and he's expressing a delusional belief, uh, I would encourage you not to try to argue with him. Or, or to sort of say, like, that's not real or that's not true, um, just because I think that could only cause additional distress. And and hearing somebody say this is a delusional belief doesn't usually help somebody get away from it. Like, the more, I think, useful thing to do just as a loving friend in that moment is to affirm the fact that your friend is, like, scared or worried and ask if, you know, uh, if there's anything you can do to help or or if there's anything that they feel that they can do uh, to Feel safe or comfortable. Um, so I guess that's that's less a, a proactive piece of advice and more just a census thing to avoid. But beyond that, when possible, continue to encourage your friend to talk to his doctor or his psychiatrist or his medical team about what he's going through. I, I don't know what's going to happen with his money problems, but it sounds like you don't have the money. So again, that's just it's sad, but you don't have the money. You can't put up cash to keep him in an apartment. It's possible he'll he'll lose his apartment. And so I think to that end, it might be worth speaking again with that mutual friend as well as any family he may have back in the States. And again, I say that sort of carefully because he may not have much family back here or he may have family that would not be helpful to him. So definitely do that with a, a grain of salt. But it is possible that if he's not able to pay his rent, that sooner or later... Especially if he's not eligible for services in, in your country that um, he he may be faced with the, the need to go back home in pretty short order. Um, and so that's something that, again, you can't necessarily prevent or fix, but you can at least think ahead to how you could be helpful if he has to move in a hurry.
1: Yeah, it seems like in a lot of these cases, one of the most helpful things to do is to find other people in your own situation, Mm -hmm. um, to find community message boards or even meetings for people like the family and friends of schizophrenics. um, And those people will probably be able to, especially in your own community, not sure where they live, will be able to point you towards services and help and strategies for helping this person Probably better than we could for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah. And I think my sort of last thought in terms of the letter writer has said both sometimes his behavior is unpleasant and mm-hmm. also I care about him and I'm concerned. And so I would just suggest um, it sounds like mostly the contact you've had with your friend has been over the phone uh, rather than in person. And so I would just suggest if you are concerned that he's like confused, isolated, and depressed, maybe you're worried is he eating enough? Is he like, is, it, is his home safe? Um, but you're also uh, anxious or distressed by some of the ways that he talks to you, I would maybe encourage if you wanted to try to stop by taking another trusted friend with you, just both so that you feel a little bit less like it's just me and my friend and that might be frightening, but also to remember the person he's likeliest to harm is himself. So trying to just find a balance between making sure that you feel at ease when you possibly do visit, but also trying to go in understanding this might be distressing, it might be difficult. That doesn't mean that I, I need to imagine sort of like the worst case scenario or that he's suddenly going to become very, very violent. Um, I just want to try to thread a needle between making sure you feel relatively comfortable and also not um, treating him like he's going to suddenly become a villain from the, the Halloween movies. I, I don't know if that feels reasonable. I want to uh, sort of just be aware from a number of different angles, the way that delusional beliefs can lead to really distressing and upsetting behavior, and also often the reason somebody in a position like this gets so isolated is because other people start to treat them like they are inherently violent and and dangerous in ways that can really make getting help and getting treatment harder. It's it's hard. I, I also have had um, uh, friends in my life who have experienced bouts of delusional thinking, and sometimes all I've been able to do is stay in touch and say that sounds really hard i'm thinking of you i really care about you um and it feels totally inadequate and partly just because it is but you know maintaining at least some line of communication where you can be like affirming and loving uh, and not try to argue them out of it sometimes is the best that you can do But please do write back, let us know how you're doing, if you're able to find any additional resources that may be available, even if your your friend doesn't qualify for state services in this country, um, and whether or not you have any other friends or, or family members of his back in the states that might be able to provide additional help and support. And of course, if anybody listening has any more experience, like working with Similar populations who struggle with this kind of mental health, please do write in because I'm very much not an expert. Um, And as we've already established, I'm afraid of moths. So there's a real limit to my uh, internal sense of resilience and ability to help. And on that note, I think we can probably move on to our second letter if you wouldn't mind reading it when you get the chance
1: subject line is, it stopped getting better. I had a horrific childhood, but a really good therapist who basically reparented me. For most of my life, as I got older, my life kept getting better. By 2019, I was happy in my community, my career, my home, and my relationships. I was newly in love. I imagined it would continue to keep getting better. By 2020, my collective house imploded. My job morphed into informal crisis counseling, I was diagnosed with cancer, and my partner and I moved across the country so they could go to grad school. Surgery cured the cancer but left me with hot flashes that still disrupt my sleep despite HRT. Years later, I find I'm almost always in pain and exhausted. I'm also feeling pretty isolated in this new city with just my partner. I'm not so sure things are going to improve anymore. I'm a cancer survivor in my early 40s with chronic illness going through premature menopause. I'm navigating the American healthcare system, existential dread about global politics and temperatures, and the certainty that my youth is over. How do I beat back depression and try to create a good life in the midst of all of this? I want to face disability, aging, and what the kids call the end times with grace and or ferocity, but both honestly seem exhausting to reach for. This letter feels like you know. I don't know if you're on TikTok, but sometimes like the algorithm is like a little too spot on, mm-hmm. and you're like, "Oh, that's me. Uh-oh, that's me." I relate to this letter a lot, and actually, I completely think you're you're not alone. Like, we're all facing this like soup right now of existential dread about climate change and uh, inflation and healthcare costs, and and you're adding being chronically ill on top of that, which is extremely difficult already. And, um, yeah, I just want to let this person know that, like, I have a similar situation. I had a really horrific childhood. I did about a decade or more of intense therapy with sort of this idea that, like, coming out of that, I would be better. Like, I would feel better. And I do, in a lot of ways, I do feel better. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, I think that when you're like, wait, but I don't feel all the way better, you know? Like, I don't actually feel good that's kind of a surprise because there's this feeling that like you did all this work and now you're going to be happy. But uh, capitalism still sucks. And you are still in the thick of uh, some pretty major global events, a pandemic, uh, inflation, all of these things. And I think it's perfectly actually normal and okay to be a mess right now. And almost a little suspect if you're not. So I I feel this person, I'm so sorry to hear about your cancer. I too live with a chronic illness. And um going through this perimenopause stuff is uh no nobody talks about it you're not prepped for it in any way and it's really really difficult. So I think honestly just like maybe two things I would recommend here is some some grace and some rest mm-hmm. for yourself to understand that like that healing unfortunately is like a lifelong process and that even if you like think that you like did the work and put stuff to bed you're still somebody, you're still, you still are in pain. And it sounds like quite a bit of pain. And then the other thing is, it sounds like loneliness is a huge piece of this, that you move to this new city and you have, you don't have the community that you had before, which can be so, so difficult. And something I would recommend that whenever I'm feeling existential dread, I get involved with mutual aid, which is a really good way to find a new community, to meet cool people, but also maybe... Uh, and this is sometimes hard to hear, maybe you need to be on the receiving end of that mutual aid for a minute instead Mm -hmm. of volunteering. Maybe you need to reach out to mutual aid and say, hey, I am suffering right now, What what resources do you have that can maybe help me feel better?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I I think that's such a useful place to start. I'm so glad you brought that up because I, I think that the idea of reaching out to mutual aid and asking for aid might initially feel like, whoa, 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 that's no way to meet people. That's no way to feel like I'm part of a community. I would feel uh guilty. And I don't want to project that onto the letter writer. So maybe they wouldn't have that initial reaction. But I, I think that in fact that's what mutual aid is there for. And, and then you would also, I think, if and when you're eventually feeling uh differently, if and when, not if, but you know, eventually Once you go through menopause, you have gone through it. And that's not to say that your hot flashes are gone forever, but that, you know, intense in the thick of it wave of hot flashes does eventually shift. Um, You'll then have a connection with this mutual aid group that you would be able to also then give back to. And I think that would potentially feel really meaningful that it's not just about making donations of your own time and resources, but doing something reciprocal and potentially finding meaning there. So I appreciate that, uh, especially just in terms of when you're lonely but also exhausted, uh, the solution is not start volunteering a lot. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it is it is difficult, I think, to, to ask for help, especially when you're in a new place and it feels like, but if I ask for help and I'm not giving anything in return, I will be becoming indebted to people, not building friendships. And I just think, again, I don't know anyone who does mutual aid work who feels like, oh, somebody's racking up debts and I'm annoyed.
1: I also think a big piece of this, um, I'm 43, so I feel like I can speak to some of this um, about the aging and um, being sick. And, you know, I think something maybe society, because our society is so youth-obsessed, that we are not prepared for is, like, learning to be okay with aging, learning to be okay with your body changing with uh you know unfortunate the unfortunate things that seem to go along with aging the hot flashes and the aches and pains and all that but also realizing that the trade for that is peace is wisdom a lot of times like when i was a younger person i didn't have a lot of the the care and peace and and love for myself that i have now um so i would encourage this person that that you know it sounds like because of the cancer you're in kind of a new body and it needs. You may need to um, get to know this body and fall in love with this body, and, um, and make time and space for the suffering that you have already gone through, and you are already, go- and now, and now you're going through. You know, with these premature menopause symptoms. I think maybe, maybe some time and care needs to be taken there to just like, like re get to know who you are at this stage in your life, and. I think a lot of depression can come from this feeling of like worthlessness because you're aging, because that's how older people are treated in our society, especially women. Um, So I think that a lot of the grief that she says she's feeling, uh, you're not wrong. And I think that that's one of the funny things about going through something like this is you feel like, gosh, what am I doing wrong here that I'm depressed? And how should I create a good life? It sounds to me like honey you just need to fester for a minute. Like mm. I I highly encourage you to mope, to lay on the couch, to feel sorry for yourself, to look out the window, uh, to me it sounds like you came out, you had a whole bunch of horrible cr- stuff happen and you're feeling bad about feeling bad and I think it's okay like to just be like I, you know, to so maybe tell your partner, I'm not going to be in a good place for a minute. I'm happy for you with your new job and I'm happy that you're excited about this, but I'm I'm mourning right now.
0: Yeah. I think that's it too, especially because when you're combining like a real change in your social network and genuine ongoing like chronic pain and fatigue, uh, it it can feel totally um, like alienating and and crazy making for someone to say just like, it is going to get better, like focus on the things that are good. And while I never want to encourage anybody to like permanently focus only on their grievances. I also just think it, it is simply true that you are going through it right now. And and I think, if anything, one of the reasons I really related to this is I often feel like when things are going well for me, things are going to be this good or better every day for the rest of my life. And when things aren't going well, I think the same thing, only in the reverse direction. I think that's really human. And, and um, that's not to say that you you need to become like completely neutral tomorrow. Um, it's just that one of the things that's true is you, I think a couple of years ago, wouldn't have been able to anticipate what you're going through now. And and the same is true about the future. I, I think, again, neither do I mean, don't worry, things are going to reverse again. And in three years, you'll be happy, healthy, and feeling great all day. So much as just often if only for a sense of predictability, we think the future is going to be a lot like today, only more so. And sometimes that's true. Sometimes it's not. uh, And we just don't always know. And so I would say you've been through a lot in the last couple of years, but I, I would focus rather on like, what do you need today? How can you rest today? How can you take care of yourself today? How can you try to like reach out to someone else? In your loneliness in a way that does not feel totally draining without worrying about it's just going to be like this more so every day for the rest of my life. And I hope that doesn't sound dismissive. I don't mean it that way, but I just, I want to encourage the letter writer to sort of move away from future tripping and either in either direction, right? Of like things are going to start getting better and then they'll get better forever or things are going to keep getting worse forever and ever.
1: Also, so much of what she's describing is these are systemic issues that we've been gaslighted Mm -hmm. into thinking we can self-care our way out of. And even I can tell that like this, this person is a gem. I can tell because they're saying they want to face all of these things. They want to face the end of times with grace and or ferocity. And it's like, you know, maybe that's, maybe that's a long-term goal and it's okay for now. If you're like, Mm -hmm. I am keeping my head above water. I have my little life raft and I am just surviving this right now. And that is okay. You do not have to be pleasant through the end of times. You do not have to do that. It is okay if you are suffering and struggling and a mess. That's totally okay.
0: Yeah. And I think in addition to that, you know, It was also just as true that global politics and global temperatures were pretty dire back in 2019. And none of that's to say like, oh, letter writer, you only care about this stuff now because other things aren't going well. I think it just sort of speaks to when you don't feel like you have that strong, close knit community to support you, then those big picture, more existential issues can take front and center because it feels a little bit like, and I don't even know how I'm going to face these things because my people aren't with me anymore in the same way that they used to be. So again, that doesn't mean, letter writer, that your fears around global dynamics or the future of the planet aren't serious or real, just that I think one of the reasons they're taking more of a forefront right now is because that underlying question of who's going to stand with me, who's going to help me, how am I going to face these things and do my best to try to you know make the world a better place, uh, I'm looking around and I feel much more alone. And so now those bigger questions feel more threatening, which isn't to say... Uh, get a bunch of new friends and then you'll feel fine so much as just they may loom slightly less huge if you're able to also focus on like combating that isolation, getting some more rest. Uh, And so this has been a very long rambling roundabout way of saying, I wonder if among other things, you know, all we got about the sort of old community is that the communal living imploded. So I didn't get a really strong sense of like letter writer, do you feel like if you moved back to your hometown from the city that you're in right now, that there would still be a big network of people waiting for you? And if so, is that something that you want to talk to your partner about? Like, do you want to talk about the possibility of moving back? I don't want you to feel like that door is closed to you just because you've moved here for the last few years. People are allowed to change their minds, especially when they're going through a number of serious things like you are. Um, Or if, if, those relationships sort of all fell by the wayside as a result of that implosion. I wonder if you feel like there would be any value in reaching out to any of those people and trying to mend fences. Again, I don't I don't know. You don't have to do that if it's like no, the way that things ended between us was really horrible and and I just want to not reopen that door. That's fine, but it, if part of you feels like I would love to, you know, call one of them, um I want you to feel like you can. And then if not, if that's just like, nope, those those doors are all closed, I think reaching out for some help with mutual aid might be useful. Looking for like a post-cancer support group, either in your area or on Zoom, if it feels like I can't really add another like drive somewhere and like sit on a folding chair and talk to people right now when I can barely make it through the day with my eyes open. But just anything that would sort of uh, you know put you around people who are like, I also get a lot of hot flashes. Here's what I do to make it slightly more bearable.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with all that. It's being able to sit in a circle with people who are also like, I'm miserable, whether that's any, I, whatever it is, a support group, a 12-step group, or whatever in life, I'm always about sitting in rooms with other miserable people. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, again, if only because they'll often have really good specific tips for managing misery that yeah. are not like, here's how you're going to be beautifully happy tomorrow. But it's like, yeah, I also sweat through my sheets every night. Here's what I do to make it a little bit less shitty. Um, and I think my sort of last thought here, which I hope is bracing rather than otherwise, but, you know, there was just that line about the certainty that my youth is over. And, um, I, I think it's just if if you find it useful to say this, that's true. And that happens to everyone. Everyone who has ever lived long enough stops being young. That doesn't mean that, there's no hope of ever enjoying your life again, or that you can't get help and treatment for the specific ways that like cancer has affected your health. But it is true that youth is over. Uh, Again, it doesn't mean that like your 40s are the end for everyone, but it is just true. And I think sometimes it will feel better to start from a position of like, yes, I can be sad about that, but it is true. And youth never comes back. It's the one thing you can guarantee when it's gone, it's gone. It does not return. Time does not ever work backwards. Um, not because I think you'll just then feel great about it, but just because I think it can sort of help to look at it from a sort of um, perspective of like, what are, what are some ideas about aging or some work or art about aging that you find interesting, useful, useful, maybe not necessarily aspirational, but admirable, um, I think that might be a good place to start as well because I want you to be able to think about you know, the rest of your life not in the sense of all it is is about arresting the slide of lost youth. And if you can't do that, you know, all the good things are gone so much as just what do I think a beautiful middle age can look like and how could I access that? And I think that's part of what will also be helpful about I want to face these things with grace and or ferocity, but I don't have them. And to say, again, that's okay. You don't need to produce grace or ferocity in yourself any more than you need to produce like B12. Like they have B12 in supplements and food. Find other sources of grace and ferocity and get yours from them. I think this is a great point for me to recommend a wonderful Canadian movie that I saw for the first time last year called uh, Strangers in Good Company. And it's, uh, I think there's like two titles for it. It's either called Strangers in Good Company or In the Company of Strangers, but it's directed by Cynthia Scott. It's like a dramatic fake documentary about a bunch of elderly women who are on a bus that breaks down. And it is one of the most beautiful and moving movies I've ever seen in my life. Uh, And I highly recommend that everyone watch it. It's just a bunch of old women sitting in a, an abandoned country house, reflecting on their lives, thinking about the future, trying to figure out how they're going to survive. And it is totally, totally beautiful. And uh, I, I hope that I don't spend the end of my life on a broken down bus, but there's a lot out of that movie that I've gleaned and found beautiful and compelling. Um, and and I want that for The Letter Writer, too. Sorry, I know that was really long, but it really is a truly perfect movie. Well, then on that note, I think we can assume that we have exhausted all of our thoughts about this particular letter. Um, I really appreciate just your compassion and, and um, sense of identification with this letter writer. I think I feel much the same way. Like she seems like a wonderful person and I wish there was more we could do personally to just like, I don't know, drop by some tea at her house.
1: Yeah. Sounds like she needs uh, a hard cry and like a long night of watching Practical Magic or something like
0: that. Oh, another great movie. Yes, absolutely (laughs) Practical Magic. And frankly, I I wish we could send a lot of like butterflies uh, and and local bees her way because I feel like that could also be potentially restorative. I don't know why I assume bees will solve everyone's problem. But in your experience, do they solve most problems?
1: I think so, personally, but... I think I know a lot of people are very scared of them. So I get that. (laughs) Right, sure. Uh, Probably
0: for everybody. You know, consensual bees, bees that you have said yes to being in an experience with rather than surprise bees, certainly. But that's just, I think, a given. How did you, if you don't mind my asking, come to bees or how did bees come to you? At what point did you think, I want to have more of a close relationship with this particular type of insect?
1: Well, I'm actually a third generation, so my stepdad keeps bees, and his dad kept bees. He grew up keeping bees, too, and um, yeah, I just, you know, I was kind of a goofy, I don't know, bug-obsessed kid, and I was really, really into bees and ants and stuff as a kid, so I guess just growing up around it and my dad being so into it, um, I just, later in life when I had my own kids, wanted them to get into it also, so yeah.
0: That's really lovely and beautiful. And I love the idea of being like multi generational beekeepers. Uh, if nothing else, just because the word, it, like the language itself is so beautiful. Like we don't call owning dogs like dog keeping or being a shepherd sheep keeping. And there's something I think really beautiful about the idea of beekeeping. Like I keep them, they keep me. Uh, I'm in some ways responsible for their maintenance. They are in some ways like a charge and a vocation. It feels very like beautiful and noble.
1: Yeah. It's a very hands off Zen um hobby I guess because it's like you have to move slow you have to take your time you kind of have to pay attention to what they want you to be doing at any given moment you know if you're doing ethical beekeeping I uh you know obviously people with 10,000 hives are moving through things really fast but I have two now so I can take my time
0: with them yeah is do you have a sense of like like, how do you distinguish between the hives? Like, does it feel like each hive has more of its own personality, or is that not quite how? Oh,
1: for sure, yeah. Well, you know, if you think of genetically, uh, all the bees in the hive are related to the queen, so they will all, to some degree, have her personality. Uh, they'll be more angry, more fussy, more grumpy, you know, or they'll be sweet and kind of mellow and not really, not really, be very bothered by you getting in there. So they definitely have personalities. Or you'll say, oh this hive's grumpy, but they're really good honey producers. Or these guys are really mellow. You can do whatever. You don't even have to smoke them.
0: That's uh, really, really beautiful. And I love the idea uh, both of ethical beekeeping and also the idea of like a real Carmen Sandiego type who's like, I'm an unethical beekeeper. <laughs> and I'm just like stealing from them all the time.
1: <laughs> well, so I mean, I I wouldn't, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of debate within the beekeeping community about all this. This is, my dad always says that there's as many beekeeping theories as there are beekeepers. Everybody does it completely different. And to me, the ethical part of it is like, um, you know, are you keeping in mind that these are living creatures at the end of the day and not just, you know, going through and smashing a bunch of bugs and, you know, throwing, throwing them out if you're done with them or whatever. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And, um, now I just, uh, yeah, I feel like I want to go learn more about bees, and that's a always an exciting position to be in, because I know almost nothing about bees, so my ability to learn is high. Um, on that note, I think that's everything for today, Emma. Thank you so much uh, both for your, uh, you know, incredibly thoughtful and warm advice, and also for teaching us so much about bees.
1: Oh, absolutely, thanks for having me. Of course,
0: yeah. See you around. Members get an extra episode of Big Mood, Little Mood every Friday, and you'll get to hear more advice or conversations with our guest. And as a Slate Plus member, you'll also be supporting the show. Go to slate.com forward slash mood plus to sign up. It's just $15 for your first three months. If you'd like me to read your letter on the show, maybe you need a little advice, maybe you need some big advice, head to slate.com slash mood to find our Big Mood, Little Mood listener question form. Or find a link in the description on the platform you're using right now. Thanks for listening. And here's a preview of our Slate Plus episode coming this Friday. Letter writer, you know, the the beliefs that you share that have come up here are, I believe that if I ever say no to sex, ever, I'm hurting my partner yeah, I can see why sex sometimes feels daunting with that belief too. That would feel really daunting, that level of pressure, which is, I have to always be available for sex. Otherwise, I will reject and harm my partner. That's an immense amount of pressure to be under. And so I just encourage you to share that sense of pressure, share that fear, not only with your partner, but also a therapist, preferably like a a a therapist who's who's got some experience working and people who have like sexual traumas or sexual blocks they want to try to work through potentially also with a couples counselor and maybe with a trusted friend you don't have to obviously if the idea of like sharing this incredibly intimate personal set of ideas about sex with a friend feels you know awful don't do it but i, I would encourage you to share about this not only with your partner more than once because I don't want you to feel just stuck in shame about like, why do I have this belief or this belief is dumb and therefore I shouldn't have it just because I I don't think that would be helpful. I've never successfully shamed myself out of a feeling that I felt ashamed of. To listen to the rest of that conversation, join Slate Plus now at slate.com forward slash mood.